Hi, and welcome to the 40 and Infertile podcast. I'm your host, Victoria, at 40 and Infertile on Instagram. I'm a fellow IVF patient, and this is where I share with you my fertility journey in my late 30s and 40s, while also providing you information to minimize your fertility struggles later in life. Hi, everyone. This is episode 43, and today we have Becky Kearns at Defining Mom and founder of Paths Parent Hub. Um, I think what you'll notice right away is the gentle and soothing manner Becky has about her, which is the complete opposite of how I am. <laughs> I am loud, obnoxious, and um, a little bit less soothing. I think I can be a little bit more agitating than soothing, but Becky has this wonderful way about her and how she tells her story. And um, today she shares with us her story about premature ovarian failure in her late 20s. And some of what she's experiencing can be so familiar to those of us who are older and in our late 30s and 40s. Um, who have a low AMH and some of the stuff that's happening to us as, you know, our FSH climbs. And I just got my FSH back um, today. So I, this resonates with me so much more today um, than I think at the time that I recorded this. And I did record this quite some time ago. So thank you for your patience, Becky. Um, and she's really incredibly vulnerable today as she talks about her path to egg donation. Um, she talks about her fears, her thoughts, the struggle she had during this time in her life. And over the course of our conversation, we kind of talked about how we share with our families about donor conception, or if we don't share with our families about donor conception. Um, and then the conversations um, that we have with our children. So if you do end up using um, donor eggs or donor sperm, the type of conversations you have with your children, how you approach it, and some resources that are available. I do want to warn you that there's a little bit of audio trouble, and for some reason, I lost part of the interview. So, um, real talk, I this what happens is what happens when you um, are uh, a one-man band <laughs> and not a sound engineer <laughs> by any means. So, um, I have uh, the majority of our conversation, but we did lose about, I think it was probably 10 minutes or so towards the end. Um, so, my apologies for that. As always, if you find value in our conversation and if the mood strikes you, please do donate to the podcast um, or leave a review um, so that we can get more listeners to hear these stories and these resources available to them. Um, I will leave a link in the show notes along with the books that we discuss on this episode. Um, there'll be a link to my Amazon shop. So your purchase with that link helps me offset the costs of running the podcast. So I would be so grateful if you opted to buy any of the books that we discuss on the show that you do use the link um, provided in my show notes. Uh, thank you to everyone for being a part of the 40 and infertile community. Um, I'm so grateful for you all and I really hope to continue to bring more content that helps you on your quest to parenthood and I want to thank Becky for her infinite amount of patience as I take forever and ever and ever to finally finish this episode so thank you Becky and thank you for taking the time 
to be on the show and having such a great conversation and your honesty, your vulnerability, your advice, and most of all, your support of all of us who really hope to be parents one day. So thank you so much to Becky. So please, if you are having a hard time with donor conception, this is the episode that you'll want to listen to. I do have other donor conception episodes that I'll link um, in the show notes for you to visit as well if you're looking for more episodes, more advice, and other stories on donor conception. All right, guys, there's a lot of good stuff happening today. So here we go. Just a quick reminder, I am not a physician, and the information provided today is for educational and informational purposes only, and is not a substitute for professional medical advice. So make sure that you consult with your own fertility doctor before choosing any medical therapies that may affect your fertility. Unfortunately, every person's situation is unique, and it is vital that you discuss your own personal situation with your fertility doctor to decide what is the best course of action for you. Hi, Becky. Welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk to you today. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah. So I don't I don't remember how I found you, but I think I was kind of in the deep dive of looking at all things donor conception and trying to find out more because I'd just been exposed to kind of like all the different questions that might come up with considering donor conception. And then um, you came up and then also I think, uh, path to parent hub came up too. And so I was like, Oh my yeah. gosh, I'm like, who's this Becky Kearns person? <laughs> like, <laughs> I want to ask her all these kinds of questions. Like I need to know more. And so, um, all the available support and things like that. Cause there's a, a lot that I guess I didn't anticipate thinking about. And then a yeah. lot I didn't anticipate, um, having feelings about. So, yeah. um, all of that I think is very interesting. And I think to have you on having lived it and then helping other people through it is um, really, really, really important for us to kind of like dive into. So thank you so much for being here. I'm so grateful. No problem at all. So let's, let's start with your story and kind of how from the fertility standpoint, kind of how you ended up at donor conception. Yeah. So when I tell my story, it always seems so straightforward when you condense it down to a a few minutes, but it really wasn't easy. And I think that's what I tried to get across. But I was 27, just turning 28 when I was diagnosed with early menopause. And my husband and I knew we wanted to have children. We wanted to kind of, we'd been seeing what happened and I'd come off the pill and my cycles were so irregular, but even like really frequent. So I was having them like every 12 days in some occasions, it was anything between 12 and 20 days. And you know, when you start Googling new research, you think that's not enough time to make a baby. Something Mm -hmm. isn't right here. And I went to my GP and my doctor and said, look, something doesn't feel right. But because of my age, I kept getting turned away. Everything's fine. It's just your body settling down. And at the same time, I was having night sweats as well, but I hadn't put two and two together. Hadn't even realized that menopause was even an option for something that I might be going through. And it was only sort of a few months down the line where I really pushed for some tests and had my hormone levels checked that I realized my FSH was so high. And then further on down the line, I had an AMH test and that was really, really low. And I was told that basically I had POI um, and that my egg reserve was really, really low and it resembled the egg reserve of someone probably in their 
late forties, um, and I was in my late twenties. So it was a huge, huge shock. And, um, we were told that if we wanted any chance of having children, we had to go straight down the IVF route. So initially donor eggs weren't really on the horizon. I was told with, because of my age, if we can get some eggs, they'll be good quality. So we're hoping that you'll be fine. And we went through five cycles of IVF with my own eggs. I did actually get pregnant on the first cycle and miscarried at just over eight weeks. And, and that was devastating because I thought the hard part was over once I'd seen that positive pregnancy test, you know, and you're in that naive state of mind that you kind of, you can never go back to later on down the line. Um, but after that, I started to worry a bit more about my egg quality and we, but given that I got pregnant, I thought, no, we'll, we'll just keep trying. We'll, we'll find that golden egg. And we, we kept going. And did they tell you that also like, oh, don't worry about it. Like it'll, yeah. it'll be okay because of your age. Did you, did you hear that? Yeah, a lot, a lot. And, um, we'll try this. We'll try that. So we tried some natural cycles and, um, and I was only getting probably one to maximum three eggs each time. And you know what it's like with the drop off rate. Sometimes there was nothing to transfer. And, um, I remember on our very last go, it was kind of a, kind of a bit of a roll of the dice. We just thought we'll give it one more turn. We'll go on a natural cycle because actually I had a scan at the beginning of the cycle and I had a couple of follicles and they said, well, we may as well give it a go. And yeah. I got two embryos, <laughs> two to yeah. three embryos on a yeah. natural cycle, which was, and I thought, this is it. This yeah. is the miracle. It's going to happen. And had them both put back and it, nothing did happen. Mm -hmm. I had a negative test. But I, I think I'd already started to think about donor eggs, probably around after failed cycle number three. And I, I really started to think about it as an option. And I suppose in my mind was to come up with a plan of if this doesn't work, then how do I yeah. get to be a mum? And being a mum is one of the things that I had always imagined I would be. I never even considered that it wasn't going to be in my future. And so to have that almost taken away from me was really disorientating. And I, I just didn't know what I would do if, if I wasn't able to have a baby. And, yeah. and so we went, we had lots of discussions. We did some research. Um, my husband wasn't on board at the beginning when I started to sound him out about look if this is the only way what what do you feel about it and and at first he said look I don't know whether I'll ever be okay with this and and that's a really difficult conversation to have because in your relationship you don't ever expect to have to have those discussions where you're, yes. you're talking about bringing in someone else's genetics and having a child that doesn't share one of your genetics and how and I think in my mind, I was thinking, hold on a minute. I'm the one here having to say goodbye to my genetics. Why are you so bothered? But he, Right, so that was going to be my question. Yeah. Like, why? Yeah, why? And I think at the time, I don't think it was very hard for us to kind of verbalize how we were feeling. But looking back, I think he was also grieving the loss of my genetics. And he'd always had kind of that vision in his mind of what our future child might look like and be like. And... And I think the whole concept, like it felt to me at first, felt very alien in the thought of having somebody else involved who we didn't know and we didn't know anyone else who had been through it. And it just felt really strange. And And this is the whole reason why I share what I do today. And I talk about this whole process and the feelings associated with it because I felt really, really alone. And I think my mm -hmm. husband did as well. Mm -hmm. And one of the big turning points for us was actually when I... 
I found a lady through a, a netmums forum um, and I started talking. It was during one of my cycles and she had a little boy through donor eggs. And what I loved about her was she didn't say, you should do this. She said, you'll know if you're ready mm-hmm. and you you need to do what you need to do with your own eggs. You need to, only you can decide. And she, there was no pressure from her whatsoever. And she became that person that I would text all the time and I could really truly say how I was feeling because she got it. And I remember meeting up with her. She wasn't too far away from where I was in the UK and she came along with her son and we we met for lunch and he played and we talked and I remember getting in the car afterwards and I just burst into tears because I just suddenly realised that what was possible and I think I'd been so focused on what I would be losing, I hadn't really thought about what I would be gaining and what I could still have and I saw their relationship and I just thought, they are just like any other mother and son. They, <laughs> there was nothing obvious where I, I kept almost thinking, would it feel weird? Would it feel weird all the time? And I just saw them together and just seeing that relationship just completely made it seem achievable. It made it seem real. And and that's why I tried to show kind of my life with the girls now to show people that we are typically just like any other family. We just have a very different story as to how we became a family. And and there are things that we need to navigate along the way. But ultimately, our relationship is just the same as any other parent-child relationship because it's built on those shared moments together and processes and, and bonding throughout from them being a tiny baby all the way to where they are today. Um, but I suppose that's part of my story to say we, we did eventually make that decision to use donor eggs after that failed fifth cycle my husband said no come on let, let, let's give it a go um we we were on the waiting list for quite some time in the UK and I was one of these people that was only happy when something was in motion I really struggled in the waiting the in-between and we started to look uh, abroad and we looked we had some virtual sessions with some clinics abroad and we found one in the Czech Republic who we really liked we got a really good gut feel for and we thought well, let's just try something different so we flew out for a consultation my husband gave a sample and they told us how they could probably find a donor quite quickly and within sort of 8 weeks i'd been matched with a donor and we were moving full pelt ahead and and i I had a wobble at that point when things became real. And I think that's really important to talk about as well. Because once you make this decision, it doesn't necessarily then you're absolutely fine with it. There are things and feelings, different stages that bring up different emotions. And we, yeah, we went um, out a few weeks later once the donor's eggs had been collected and we had five great blastocysts, which is more than I'd ever had, (laughs) and um, had one put back. And that resulted in my daughter, Mila, who was born in 2016. Um, So we were very fortunate that it worked for us first time. And then a year later, we decided we wanted to have a sibling and it took a while to get to where we were today. So let's start early. And we went back and um, intended to have just one put back, but they had frozen our remaining four embryos in two pairs. And so they said, well, we may as well put them both back to give you a better chance because we can't refreeze one if we kind of defrost both. So that was a bit of a decision-making process as to do we go for this and potentially have twins. And 
and we decided to, I couldn't let an embryo go um, after everything we'd been through. And, and we did end up having twins. And so I have my uh, twin girls, Eska and Lena. Um, so they're four now, Mila is six. So we're a few years on. Um, but I still pinch myself today. I can't believe that I have them. I can't believe that everything that we went through led to them and I wouldn't change it for the world. And, and I think that's another thing I want to get across around. It's so hard when you're at the beginning and you can't see what the future might look like. And I think if anything, I just hope to give people that hope of what is possible and what relationship you can have. And, and I always say you may not be able to conceive in the way that you've always imagined, but you can still parent in the way that you'd always imagined. And I think that's a really important thing to keep in mind. Yeah. And so uh, there's so many things to unravel with everything. And like you said, it's hard to like express everything in a condensed story, right? Mm -hmm. So if you don't mind, if we can go back kind of um, in your mid to late 20s, when you started to hear this whole menopause talk, how did that, how did that feel? How did that strike you? And did you you know, did your family, like, did you tell family members? Did, you know, did you do any of that? Tell your girlfriends? Like, did you find that you had support? Yeah. And I'm, I'm typically quite an open person. So I find it hard if I'm going through something not to talk, I, it, I have to talk. It, it helps me. And so, um, I remember when I had my diagnosis, I, I'm ever so close with my mom where we, we speak most days and she's like my best friend. And, I remember finding out when she was just, she'd just gone on a two week holiday abroad and all I wanted was to speak to my mom, but I didn't want to spoil her holiday. So I waited until she got back. And I remember I was kind of sat on the doorstep when she got home, I just needed her. Um, and oh, I've not, I'd, it was the hardest thing to go through. I, I, I can't even describe how hard it was because it, it is like that it's losing that dream you've always had or potentially losing it. And I don't think I really gave too much thought to the menopause side of things because I was so focused on the, will I ever be a mom? And so the menopause diagnosis really hit me after I'd had the girls and I started to suffer more with symptoms and I went on to hormone replacement therapy. But at that time, my fear was just that I wouldn't be a mom and it affected me hugely emotionally, it affected me at work and, and everything else. And, and I just needed to talk. And so my mum was amazing, but I saw she was grieving as well. And I think that's another thing. Our family members are also grieving the loss of the dream that they've had in their mind as well. And it's, and I think in a way telling them early helped because they went on the journey with me. So there was never a big moment where I had to sit them down and say, look, we're thinking of using a donor. And they knew that it was a possibility. And when we got to that point, they were fully supportive. And I, I'm very, very fortunate to have that support around me. And, and I was open with a few of my girlfriends as well, who were close to me. And, um, especially after the miscarriage, I remember there was a, a big wedding of a friend and it was just afterwards. And I was like, in two minds, do I go, do I not? And all my girlfriends rallied around me and said, look, come with us and we will look after you. And I remember having a good cry to them, but it was just so nice to have that support. And so in my close circle, everyone kind of knew. Um, I only really came out on a broader scale when I launched Defining Mum back in, I think it was 2018. Um, and I remember doing it during Fertility Week and I was so nervous pressing go on that. 
like on Facebook, you know, you kind of, it's all you old acquaintances and, and things that you think, oh, what will people think of me? But the response was incredible and I've never f had anything like it. I was worried that some people might make comments or kind of find it strange. But everyone who sent me a message just said, wow, you are so incredibly brave and thank you for sharing this. Or they knew somebody who had, and then that's the other thing. I think we don't realise how many people have children this way until we go through it ourselves. And I remember I, when I was pregnant, I was in an NCT group and five out of the eight of us had either been through fertility treatment or suffered loss. And after having our babies, I remember I was changing Mila's nappy and I confided in one of the other mums about the fact that she was donor egg conceived. And she turned to me with tears in her eyes and said, I use donor eggs too. And that is two people out of eight, <laughs> a quarter of that group. And I know that's not representative of the whole population, but there are more people than you think out there who have needed to use a donor or know somebody else who's needed to use a donor. And so even though it feels really isolating, there are others out there. But I also think it's really important to find those that do understand and do get it because there are certain things you can't talk about with someone who hasn't been through this, such as genetic loss and how that feels. But yeah, in terms of telling people that was a big support for me. Um, and, but I know not everyone's in that position and it can be a really difficult thing to decide when to tell and how to tell. Um, and I did create a, a resource to try and help with this. It's, it's for loved ones, basically to, it's a free resource on paths to parent hub. And basically it explains what, donor conception is, how it can feel. And I have a, some therapists talking about how they can best support us. Um, so if there's someone who is a family member or a friend who you want to tell, but you don't can't quite find the words to explain it all, or you haven't got the emotional energy to explain it all. Um, there's also stories from there from people who have been through it. It's a way of saying, look, this is something we're going through. Here's this resource. I just haven't got the energy at the moment to explain it, but have a look at this and then let me know any questions you've got. And I just need you to support me. So what I'm trying to do is almost try and create those resources to allow people to have these conversations with that information behind them, because there are some people who will make comments that are hard to deal with because people don't know what to say. And I think I remember a friend saying to me, oh, oh, I couldn't have done that. And that really hurt me because I was like, are you trying to say that that's something that there's something wrong with what I've done? Or, and she wasn't, it was just, she was just saying, oh, I don't think I could have done that. But it's, it's very hard when you're talking about something so personal and so raw as well. Um, but I would also say that I have been blown away by the, the positivity that I've had. And I think often we worry about the negative comments and people saying things and, and there are always going to be those ones, but on the whole, I think our fears can be bigger than reality in a way. I think often we fear it, but actually in reality, being told in the right way, people are understanding. And I think it is about saying that this is hard. It's not easy. It's, it's, it's our personal decision but this is how I need you to support me. And it is important to have that support around you as a family as well, because for the child as well as they grow up. So people who care for them 
know and can support them as they get to know their story. Well, and I think too, you bring up a really good point in that when we don't talk about it, then it creates this kind of shame and secrecy, you know, like Mm -hmm. you said that other mom who said, oh my gosh, she is too, you know, and I think the more we talk about it, the more we kind of make it um, like less, um, I don't want to say shameful, but like it's, there's no stigma tied to it, then it becomes less of an issue and people are more open to having that discussion to say, oh yeah, hey, me too. That's so great. You know? Um, Yeah. Because you're right. There's, you know, a lot of people who don't understand it, number one. And number two, who kind of go through it in silence. I mean, that kind of happens with infertility anyway. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think, so I think a lot of people who have not gone through infertility don't understand infertility. And I think people who have not had to go through the um, process of having to grieve your genetics and thinking about donor conception yeah, also don't know what that's like. And then yeah. there's like a couple different versions of that too, right? It's a whole other level, isn't it? It's like another level of difficulty in the story and, and having to tell people. And I love the quote, um, I think it's from a lady called Anne Voskamp. It's, it's shame dies when stories are told in safe spaces. Mm-hmm. So just like this, like yeah. we're talking and, and, being able to hear other stories and being able to share yours as well with someone who understands, gosh, the, the difference it can make and mm-hmm. the difference it made for me and having that one person to speak to, I'm not sure how I would have got there without that. And mm-hmm. that's why it is so important to have those people you can trust and rely on and speak to and and share these deep, dark feelings and thoughts because... I, I always think that if you talk, it makes it smaller. Yeah. If you hold it inside, it just gets bigger. And and that's what I try to encourage. And that's why Paths to Parent Hub has been created almost as that safe space for people to talk with each other away from social media, because not mm-hmm. everyone wants to be public on social right. media about it. Um, and yeah, you just know that there's always someone there who gets it. And you can also, even if you just sit back and you see other people asking questions, you think, oh, thank goodness they've asked that because that was on my mind as well. So connection is so important. And so, I mean, it sounds like your family was very, very supportive. Was your husband's family also super supportive about it all? Yes. Yes, they were. And we've not really had anybody in the family who hasn't been supportive. I remember we didn't tell my grandma. My grandma is still with us now and she's... um, she had dementia and she didn't quite understand when we were talking about IVF. And so we made the decision that it just wasn't appropriate to tell her. And, um, but recently, I mean, she doesn't say much anymore, but she absolutely lights up every time we take the girls around and there's no genetic connection there. She doesn't know it's not there. Um, but she made a comment just a couple of weeks ago and I remember sharing it on my Instagram, um, to my mom and she was looking at a picture of Lena and she said, doesn't she look like our Becky? And and it made me really emotional because I thought, even though that physical resemblance isn't there, she sees it. Like she sees the connection and she sees. And, and so it's, I think there are people who you might want to know, but it's not right for them to know in the sense that they might, might not understand. And my nan, before she passed away, my mum did tell my nan and, and her first reaction was, don't worry, I won't say a word. I won't tell anybody. And my mum said, no, 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 it's, it's okay. Becky's open about it. But her first reaction was, this is a secret and I will keep that secret. And so, but my husband's family were, I mean, they didn't talk about it a lot, but they were always supportive. Um, 
And that's always been good to know as well. And I actually know my sister-in-law has started reading books to her children, so the girl's cousins, about how different families are made. And that's allowed her to start that conversation and say, oh, you know, Matt and Becky um, and the girls, they needed some help to have a baby. And and so that I thought that was really lovely because that's probably something she wouldn't have thought to do otherwise. But knowing our story, she thought actually it's an important part of them understanding that not all families are the same and every family is different. So it's it's encouraged lots of other conversations, I think. Yeah. And did you, um, during that whole process, because something that I think about when I... Um, when I think about needing a donor is whether or not, I know, and this comes up for some people too, whether or not you'll, you fear that you won't bond mm -hmm. with your children. And obviously, you know, knowing your relationship now, I know you do, but yeah. back then, did you ever like worry about that? Did that ever come across? Did, you know, your mom ever bring it up? Did you ever bring it up? And um, nobody else brought it up, but it was a fear that I had. And again, I didn't really feel like I could talk about it at the time. So I, it it came about more so when I was pregnant and um, I did, I felt very attached to my baby and the whole process of growing her. And, but whilst I was pregnant, I remember the closer I got to due day, I had these like fears around and anxieties around how will I feel like the real mum and will they have some kind of sixth sense that I'm not genetically connected to them? And will they settle more for Matt than they will for me because they share genetics? And But all of these things, I felt almost like people would think I'm, I was crazy if I said them out loud. And I don't even think Matt would have really understood. He would have said, oh, well, of course not. But they were very, very real feelings for me. And, and I think they're really important to talk about as well. And I remember thinking, oh, gosh, what? Like almost feelings that I actually felt quite shallow for thinking because I didn't dare say it out loud, but what if my baby's got some kind of really obvious feature that isn't from us and really stands out and is, I, I don't know, I just, it, it was all of these unknowns because, but nobody knows what their baby's going to look like. But when you've got a third party involved, it creates all this additional layer of kind of what, what will they look like? And, and I was talking to, a therapist, Julianne Boutaleb, who is one of my speakers on Paths to Parent Hub, and she talks about how we, and all babies are little strangers, really. Um, and it, it is very much about that process of meeting them and getting to know them. And, and that's one of the key things, I think, is to know that attachment is a process. It isn't something that just magically happens. And and I did, when Mila was put on, on me, I felt a rush. I did feel a rush of love for her. For some people, it takes longer but I still looked at her face and I thought like hello who who are you like <laughs> and she was kind of looking at me so who are you and, and it is yeah, that yeah, yeah. you get to know them and and but they are there are these moments that and this is another term that Julianne uses on Paths to Parenthood but it's called when you claim your baby and the, it's these moments where you kind of almost feel the bond and you 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 feel yourself as the real mom, you know you are. And mm -hmm. it's those moments like in the middle of the night where you're the one that comforts them or they've just had their injections and, and they come back to you and you settle them. Or mm -hmm. you're out and about and you manage to come down someone looks at you and says, oh, and, and it's that moment where they're looking at you as you're their mom, you're their mom. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. when they're sick, in particular, when they're not well, I mean, even now they're six and four, but when they're not well, 
they just want to lie on me and you almost mm -hmm. you feel them immediately relax as soon as they're in my arms and that is attachment that's bonding that's the process mm -hmm. you are their safe haven and and then it's starting to think about all of the kind of the epigenetics around it and the, the fact that when you're carrying them you're the voice the first voice that they hear you're the voice that they hear mm -hmm. all the way through for nine months and then so when they are born they know your voice that soothes them and they, they even just little things like they know your smell and and again i remember a midwife saying to me um if they don't settle at night use one of your t-shirts or, or nighties and put the, put it in their mm. cot with them and i remember mm -hmm. doing that i could sort of lay my nighty along the the base of the cot um yeah and she slept so much better that night. I thought, is that because she can smell me or is that? Yeah. And it's all of these yeah. things that I think you, we so cling and, and Velcro everything. That's another term that Julianne uses. It's almost like Velcroing everything to the donor conception. So, oh, I, we're not bonding or they're not settling. Is it because they're donor conceived? And actually, babies are, they're all different and they're human beings and, and it, it takes time. And, and I think, there are often, there have been times and, and I still have insecurities and I think that will always be the case. Um, mm -hmm. But I have become so much more comfortable and confident in my role as mom that as time has gone mm -hmm. on. And I know at the very beginning when the thought of using a donor and even actually when we made the decision and went through the process, I still, I felt very threatened by the thought of mm -hmm. the donor that one day they might replace me. But mm. I know now what we have that cannot be replaced. But I also know that I have to hold space for this other person that mm -hmm. gave half of their genetics. And, and I think that's another thing that we really need to accept on this process mm -hmm. and, and also realize that actually one day they might want to know who this person is and curiosity is completely normal and I kind of think back to my own feelings about about genetic loss and how strongly I felt about that it would be strange for me to expect that they don't have any feelings of wonder or kind of as they form their identity wanting to know more and, and having that need to know more and so I think reflecting on my own feelings has helped me almost understand how they might feel as well. And, and that's a whole new conversation that we could talk about in terms of supporting them as they grow as well. Because I know yeah. when I went through it, I was so focused on having this baby that I don't think I really allowed myself to think past having that baby in my arms. And then how do we deal with the, the rest of of it all yeah. and tell them their story and talk to them about it, which I think again, as, as a parent through donor conception, we have a responsibility to be able to share that with them and to support them through it and to hold that space for the questions and, and potential curiosity as well. You actually bring up a really good point. Um, a couple of things that I wonder too, because, you know, a lot of times, and this was a little while ago, so I'm not quite sure, you know, what conversations happened around this, but you know, did you had when you were going through this process, did you think, you know, open ID versus anonymous? Was that an option where you were? Did you, you know, have that conversation? So in the UK, it is open ID at 18 and that is the law. 
Um, and I think, like I said earlier, we were, we were on the waiting list for quite some time at that point. Um, and then we decided to go to the Czech Republic and, and that is anonymous. And, and I think very much our decision was based on what we knew at the time. Um, I think we were very emotion led in terms of, we, we wanted to, we wanted to move quickly. We wanted a baby and I looking back now, my only regret in the whole process is that the girls don't have that option to find out who that person is because we used an anonymous donor. And I think it's really important that I share that because at the time it's not something I, I genuinely, and I'll be completely open with the girls. I, I think the anonymity of the donor helped me accept it a little bit more. I, th I think knowing that that person wouldn't be a threat because at the time I did feel threatened. Um, and this is me being really vulnerable here about how I felt at the time. Um, but also I, I think I had this weird feeling that if I was to use a donor locally and we were on the waiting list for quite some time, and I think we probably would have gone ahead in the UK, but I think I would have always had this niggle in the back of my mind going, is, is that her? Is she there? <laughs> Just with it being so close to home. And what we didn't really do is look elsewhere in the UK at other options. So maybe in London or the agencies and things like that. But I think at the time we knew someone else who had been abroad and we just, we'd been through so much with those five failed cycles. We just wanted a change and we thought we'll do that. And, and also financially as well. And I think that's a really important factor when you're having to pay for multiple cycles and there isn't an endless pot of money, you do have to consider that as well. And so financially that, that did play a part in kind of thinking, well, we've got more of a chance abroad because we could have more goes abroad. And so there were lots of different factors, but I, I do wish I'd have given more thought to the impact it would have on the girls and who knows what they might feel, but that is one thing where I think if I could go back, I would look to choose at least an open ID donor so that there is that choice. But equally, I wouldn't change the decision we made because I wouldn't have them. So it's a really, I found it a really complex thing to get my head around because I have really struggled with it. And I think particularly hearing voices of people who are donor conceived and kind of all of these things retro, retrospectively, and, and they're here now, they're little humans who I absolutely adore. And then I hear someone saying how difficult anonymity has been for them as a donor conceived person. And as a mom, to think that you have made a decision that is going to create difficulties for your child in the future is really difficult and I've really struggled with that and I've had kind of I've spoken with with Julianne and and others about it because at one point I used to drive myself mad and I wasn't sleeping I was reading all of these forums on Facebook and and actually that wasn't healthy for me and what I've come to accept now is that we did the best we could with the information we had at the time and that what I should really be focusing on is, okay, this is our situation. This is our story and owning that and thinking about how I then support the girls with it and, and what can I do to best equip myself for however they might feel. And they might not feel curious, but they might be curious and they might have difficult questions and they might feel negatively about that aspect. And I'd rather be prepared for the worst case scenario then bury it and not think about it and not be kind of 
open to them being able to share how they feel. And, and that's a really important thing for me. I mean, I've heard from people who are donor conceived who've said, I don't really feel like I can talk about it with mum and dad because they don't, they don't want to talk about it. I can tell it causes them pain. And so they almost take that shame onto their shoulders and, and I would be devastated if the girls ever thought that they couldn't say how they feel for fear of upsetting me because how they feel is the most important thing. And I will always be completely honest with them about everything we went through and, and how we got to where we are today. And, and I just hope that that is enough for them. And, and if they want to search in the future, so if they want to use DNA testing, then I would absolutely support them with that. And, and again, where I've shifted on the thoughts around the donor, whereas first I, I felt quite threatened by that and, and obviously was very, very grateful for what she was doing. But now I would really like to thank her and I would be really curious about knowing a bit more about her myself. So I think it, one of the things I would say to people is how you feel right now, if you're at the begin very beginning, doesn't necessarily mean you will always feel like that. And I think going through this process and becoming more confident in your role as as a parent, it it can shift your perspectives. And, and I think if it's possible at the beginning to project yourself forward and think about having a conversation with your child when they are, say, getting a bit older and they say to you, but where is that person? Like, am I, can I not find out who they are? And think about how you will feel in, being, in having to say, actually, no, we, <laughs> we won't ever know who that person is. And, and, and I think if I'd have done that, I probably would have made a different decision, but then I can't imagine that because I wouldn't have the girls. So it's, yeah. I don't know what happened when they first started having those conversations with you, but they talked to me like, cause I, um, I started my first cycle at 38 and I already had a low AMH and my FSH was okay. It was hovering around nine and 10. And mm -hmm. they, they were saying, you know, because of your age and because of these numbers, you know, you probably should think about donor egg, like cycle number one, they already started talking about it. And yeah. that is about as much information as I got. And I thought, what are donor eggs? And what is this about? And so I kind of looked it up and then I thought, oh, okay. So these women, like, you know, you are able to retrieve their eggs and then they give their eggs to you and you pay them a fee and then, you know, or, you know, the agency or whatever you're going to use a fee. And then that's it. That's like all I heard. That's all I knew. That's all I heard. Right. Yeah. And I thought, well, okay, well, that's interesting. We'll see. And then I, so I did cycle one and then it failed and then did, uh, well, switch doctors, went to cycle <laughs> two and then, you know, I got one embryo. I haven't done anything with it yet. It's still sitting frozen. <laughs> and then um, did cycle three, cycle four. And then, you know, in yeah. between all of that, like you, and I think all of us feel this way where we feel like, okay, if this doesn't work, then I need to know what's next. If this doesn't work, then I need to know what's next. So, you know, that was my question. Yeah. If these don't work or if, you know, however many cycles, because like you said, you don't have an endless pot of money to throw at this. Yeah. At some point in time, you're going to have to call it and say, okay. I'm, this is all I have left. What do we do now? So I started to kind of explore this like donor thing a little bit more. And then I ended up, this is when I kind of went into the Instagram black hole of <laughs> cash tags, right? So then you like see one account and then another and then another, and then like four hours of your life is gone. So yeah, like, <laughs> I've been there. Yeah. So I started doing that and I, and I started to see all these conversations about all these different things that I never knew about, never heard about. 
and didn't know the consequences, maybe not consequences, but maybe the outcome of mm-hmm. open ID versus anonymous, it hadn't occurred to me the whole time. Yeah. I was just thinking about me because I had yeah. the same feelings where like, well, if I, if we do anonymous, then uh, like, I'll feel better about that because then, you know, there won't be like, well, you're not my real mom or I want to meet my real mom or, you know, some yeah. conversation yeah. like that. You know, that's like everyone's worst nightmare, right? You're not my real mom and I am yeah. my real mom or something. So, you know, that's what was floating through my mind. And as, as I kind of dove deeper into these like rabbit holes of Instagram yeah. accounts, I started to kind of see more of these conversations about open ID and um, anonymous mm-hmm. and then kind of what that means to the donor conceived person. Cause I'll be completely honest. It had not even occurred to me. Like I did not yeah. even think. And, and I think part of it is because when you're presented with these ideas, nobody tells you that these are the things yeah. that you're supposed like to think about when you, cause like you said, you're, you, we're all focused on this immediate outcome, which is like, can you get pregnant? Right. That's just like yeah. the, everyone's focused on that. But then, like you say, because you can't, sometimes it's too hard to think past that because you think, well, what if it never happens or, you know, and so if you get too far ahead of yourself, then. Yeah, you don't want to. Yes. Get too far ahead, do you? Yeah. You're protecting yourself as well. Yeah. It's hard to think about having a child when you're actually worried about getting your hopes up too much. Yes. And that like rug pulled out from under you every time is just, well, Mm -hmm. you know, from, you know, your five IVF cycles that you know, you just, there's only so much of that you can take before you say, you know what, I just have to focus on the here and now and then worry about the other stuff as it comes later. Yeah. And so I think a lot of us probably did that. And for sure, I had no idea until I started to kind of go down this road. And I thought, oh my gosh, I had no idea that these were all the concerns these people had, which is, I'm so grateful to them to like voice yeah. their opinion and to share their concerns so that like the future donor conceived people um, will have less of a struggle or, you know, yeah. this whole identity thing can be really difficult when you're not quite sure, you know, where that lies because, you know, you yeah. feel bonded and close to your family, but there's also that genetic component that some people just are really curious about. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with either one. Some people are and some people aren't. And, you yeah. know, I think um, you bring up a lot of good points about having that conversation and in saying that, you know, what is your plan or, you know, how have you started talking to your children about, you know, being donor conceived and, you know, what are your thoughts around that? Do you have books or, you know, do you just start from day one? Like what, how does that work for you? Yes. So we, we always knew, we always spoke about, we would be completely open with them. And I think that was an, an absolute must for us. And, um, I remember when Mila was a baby and I started just when I was changing her nappy and things, I would talk to her about it and I'd say, you're so special. And, and I just almost practice saying, and I would get emotional sometimes. Um, and that was only occasionally. And then I got to the point where I started this account actually, and Mila was three and I hadn't used any books until then. I just kind of mentioned it when we were talking, especially we talk about eggs. She got these little toy eggs and we'd talk about it then. Um, but there's a book called Happy Together Children's Book. And, and I love that book. I love Julie, who's the author as well. She's also a donor egg mom. And she sent me a copy and I remember, well, I remember opening it. Um, and I think Mila was at nursery and I read the words and I 
burst into tears and I thought, how the hell am I going to get through this with her without crying? And I was quite nervous about reading it because it was just so beautiful and, and just, it, it just brought back a lot of emotions, I think. And, but it breaks it down into really simple terms around kind of mommy and daddy wanted a baby. They couldn't have one. They were really sad. And so they went to a doctor and there was a lady who did a really kind thing in giving some eggs. And there's a picture of this teddy bear lady giving these eggs. Um, and that made you and we had you and we're happy together and all of these things. So I remember, I still vividly remember reading that story for the first time with her and I was really nervous and, and she laid on me and, and I, as soon as her head rested on my chest, I suddenly relaxed because it just felt so right. And we read the book and, and I did have tears in my eyes, but at that age, I think she was just three when we were reading the book. Um, she didn't really they don't really at that age, they just kind of see you and they, they smile at you and they don't really say a lot. But what she did do, she picked out, there was um, like a, a, a bike with a little cart on the back with the, the baby in at the end and the mum and dad are riding on the bike. And, and Mila decided to introduce a dragon to the story and said, well, what if a dragon came down and took the car? And, and so there was me worrying about Helena and, and kind of really talking about this part of how she was made and yet she then took the story elsewhere yeah <laughs> um but we've read that book so many times with the girls as well and there's other books that we've used and and I just think books are brilliant because they give you that script and that foundation because it can be so hard to find the words especially when it is something that's quite emotional and and I think it's okay to say oh mommy's crying mommy's crying happy tears and I've said that to her before and, and now like, so if something happens at school, so like there was the nativity Mila, last year and Mila said to me, mummy, are you going to cry happy tears again? I said, <laughs> yes, I probably will Mila. Um, and she just knows that it's because I'm so happy to have her. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's okay to get emotional with them. And yeah. it shows that you're human. And mm -hmm. I think again, it's, this is all part of that bond building and yeah. kind of building that relationship on a foundation of trust and openness. And, and Mila did once say to me, well, where is that lady now? And we, we have a picture of Prague, which is where we went for our treatment up in, in our house. It's a framed picture. And I took her to show it. And I said, that's where she lives somewhere there, but we don't know who she is. And, and I'm just trying to manage those expectations around that and be really open because what I don't want to do is build up this incredible lady in her mind that she might not get to meet. So it, it's that balance of saying she did a very kind thing, but we don't really know much about her. Um, but the conversation is developing now. She's a bit older and she even came out with a conversation in the car just um, a few months ago where out of nowhere, she just suddenly said, mommy, I think the egg donor lady put some curls and some blue in my egg because I've got curly hair and blue eyes. And she had started, because I was starting to introduce to her the fact that when we were in the mirror together, that we've got different eye colors and we've got different hair. And, and that's because you didn't come from mummy's egg. And, and she'd taken that in and then that was her way of talking about it. And it was so beautiful. I just, I got a little bit emotional. I was like, happy tears again. But yeah, that, that probably is it, Mila. But they, so children 
do kind of accept it, it becomes their norm and, and, but there will be questions and I'm starting to, I've got a new book that I'm going to start with her very soon because now she's six and understanding a bit more. It's a book about DNA and, and what does that mean? There's another book called What Makes a Baby, which is a great book at talking about you need an egg and you need sperm, but it doesn't say who it comes from and you can then build your story around it. So whether you use donor sperm or donor eggs and it just gives you that opportunity to introduce it and, and, I think other books around things such as like different families as well are really important. So there's a book called Robo Babies and it talks about how every family is made differently and there are some robots that have parts that don't work and so they need other robots to help. And and so you can talk about it and you see there are two dads, there are two mums, there's a single mom um, and there's another one who needs to use a surrogate and there's an adoption. And that allows you to talk about your story amongst different stories. So it's not just saying that our story is different and you're saying every story is different. And I think it is so important in the world we live in today for them to know about different types of families. I mean, we never spoke about two mum families, two dad families as I grew up. And yet I want them to know that there are different types of families and some people have one mom and don't have a father on the scene that that's around. And yet, but for them to know that every family is special in its own way. And, and, and so I think it is so important to start early because not only does it help them in it being all they've ever known, they don't remember that moment where they were told. It also helps you as well to practice and to try different things and sometimes maybe get things a bit wrong, but then change it. And it's a process and, and that's another thing that I try and share through what I do and, and just try and help people feel more at ease. And I, with my podcast, I have a podcast called the Redefining Parenthood podcast. And in one of the episodes, um, I speak with the author of Happy Together Children's book about talking to our children. And at the end, I just, I didn't even know whether it was going to work. But I said to Mila, here's my microphone. Do you want to just talk into it about how you were made? And it's the most beautiful two minute clip of her talking about how she, she even starts it with once upon a time, <laughs> mommy and daddy wanted to have a baby. And, and she talks about how mommy's eggs were broken and how she was made. And it is just so wonderful. And I think for other people to hear a child talking about it can just, again, make it seem more possible. And, and it's that reality and, and seeing what it's like. It doesn't have to be scary. It can be a really beautiful moment of kind of sharing what is a special story of how they came to be? And which episode is that so I can link it in the show notes? Oh, I'm trying to remember. It's the one with Julie from Happy Together Children's, but I think it's episode three. Okay. I will let you know and then you can pop it in the show notes. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because I think that, I think that's true in hearing like another child. I mean, because we all talk about it, in, you know, in these podcasts, we, you know, interview, we talk to people and then they say, well, you know, these are, but like you said, hearing from that child what mm. their perception of these stories are and how they interpret our words you know what i mean yeah. i think is a very yeah. unique perspective so thank you for doing that thank you for putting yeah. that out no there no problem i like i say i didn't know even whether it would work i thought yeah. this could go horribly wrong so i had no expectation when i did it but <laughs> she just did it perfectly she's like yeah. a pro um so yeah i think things like that i think also i would say you know we were talking about kind of hearing different perspectives mm -hmm. of donor conceived people. And I think that is so important. And I do think that sometimes if you are to delve online, it can be quite overwhelming Yes, and particularly some Facebook groups and, and things. And so one of the things I've learned is that
Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. We're just going to take a quick break, so don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. I know infertility is a stressful time, and we often don't provide ourselves with enough self-care. One way to give ourselves a little more self-care is with Pranamat's acupressure mats. This is what you can do. Give yourself about 20 minutes to lie down, and within those 20 minutes, this is what you're going to experience. There's going to be an increase in blood flow, a surge of endorphins, relief of muscular tension, and finally, a euphoric calm of the mind and body. So if you're due for some unwinding after a long day, go to pranamat.com and check out their different massage mat sets. Because the 40 and Infertile Podcast is a Pranamat affiliate, 40 and Infertile Podcast listeners get a special offer by using the code 40 and infertile. That's the number four, the number zero, and A-N-D, infertile, I-N-F-E-R-T-I-L-E, all one word. And now back to our episode. Often when things are written online, it's very one-dimensional. It's it's yes. a comment or it's a, yes. it's a, it's a post. And it's very hard to know the context and yes. the person behind that and the intention behind the words. And, and so it can, I, I often find these things on and they become quite heated and yes. like rapid fire discussion mm. comments. And, and that I think can be very difficult, particularly if you're at the very beginning and there's great learning to be had from it. But I also think hearing people speak, and I think you've had Hayley yes. on the podcast yes. too. So, and Hayley is wonderful. She's got the perspective of being donor conceived and yes. a recipient parent as well. And, and it's so valuable. She's, she really understands what it's like to be a parent, but also can really understand how difficult it can be finding out late in life that she's donor conceived and, mm-hmm. and everything else around that. But one of the things I've been really key, keen to do in Paths to Parent Hub is to have lots of different voices and really show the spectrum of responses to being donor conceived and what has helped people, what people would have wanted to have had. And so having a conversation like we are now, you get so much more from it. You can understand. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I also think that's really important as well to allow yourself to hear maybe some of the more difficult stories, but when you hear someone talking about it as a human being and hearing their voice and their tone and, it's very different to seeing something written down, I believe. Yeah. And and so I think that's also a really important thing to do to understand. And um, I think the, the episode you've done with, with Hayley will be a really helpful resource yes. for people as well. Yes. And it, it was a really great conversation to kind of, you know, split because, you know, I kind of, we first started talking about being donor conceived and I thought, you know, I thought that was really a good place to start because it, you know, when you find out later in mm. life, it's like everything that you knew, or you thought you knew had changed. But I think also there's, um, and maybe it's not true. I'm speculating, you know, so I, I don't know because I'm, I'm not donor conceived. But, you know, I, I was thinking about it and I thought, well, sometimes when you are a little bit older, there is some maturity that comes with that. And, you know, you kind of understand mm-hmm. that, well, they, you know, like you, they did the best they could with the information they had. They were told not to say anything. They didn't know any better. Yeah. You know, so there's some level of forgiveness. It doesn't mean that it doesn't hurt. It doesn't mean that it's not hard to accept. It doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's not something that, you know, you can still struggle with hearing that. But I think too, sometimes when you're older, you kind of can understand that, you know, like, well, you know, we've all mistakes, yeah. made mistakes in our past and, you know, we do the best we can with what we have at the time. And, you know, it, 
you, you can only kind of build from that. And so I think there's yeah. some nice stuff about that. But then, you know, also too, I feel for the people in their 20s who are just starting to figure out who they are. And then all of a sudden, yeah. it feels like your earth gets shattered because you get this information that you were not prepared to get. Particularly if yeah. you do one of those DNA tests, you know, <laughs> it's like, I know, you do these, imagine. Yeah. And I've had, like, I've, I've um, heard of um, like, you know, friends of friends of friends, no one I know personally, but um, you know, where they find out all of a sudden they have this like secret sibling they didn't know about. <laughs> it just starts this whole, yeah. you know, like thing that they have to explore and all that stuff. So I can only imagine if, you know, they felt like their worlds were shattered with just finding a sibling. I mean, I can't imagine, you know, when they plop on the thing, like who your parent is and it's not who you think your parent is. Yeah. It's like, you know, I can only imagine And with, you know, technology the way it is. I was always, the one thing they did tell me about donor conception when they did start talking about it, when they did say, well, there is open ID, there is anonymous. And then they said, you know, there's no, real such thing as anonymous anymore with all the genetic mm -hmm. testing is that yes it it may be labeled anonymous but you know if in the future and of course technology is going to advance these things are going to get better smarter yeah. um they're like you know it's it's not truly anonymous anymore because you know if that person does do a test at some point in time and then you know your child does a test you know at some point in time then you know they could match in some database somewhere yeah. Or and even so, one of their relatives. The donor yes. doesn't even have to do the test, do they? Right. It can yeah. be traced back. So, yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I had not even considered that either. But at the time, I didn't think about all these different things, you know, to to kind of think about like, oh, well, you're right. They should have like. It, it's kind of hard for me to make that decision for them that like they can't meet their donor or something like that. But yeah. you know, again sometimes there's reasons for that. And, you know, you just kind of have to explore and kind of think about, you know, the pros and cons to each. And then it's hard sometimes too, like you, when you went abroad and that you had no choice, yeah. that wasn't an option, you know, and at the time that you were in, you know, after having so many failed cycles, it's hard to just, you know, take that much time to, you know, yeah. wait and keep waiting and waiting and waiting. So, you know, I think it's important to, have a little grace for people in the decisions yeah. that they made at the time that they made them. Yeah. Um, I, I definitely agree with that because I think one of the things I try and kind of share, especially if I'm talking to someone who's donor conceived as well, is actually a lot of these decisions are made at a time when we are incredibly vulnerable as well and with very little support out there. Right. And, that, and that's why I think it is so important to have these forums and these conversations. If there had been a podcast where I could listen to this, I was talking about yes. it openly around, it's okay to feel like this. And yeah. many, you're not alone. And yeah, there's and no shame. You probably think about there's no shame, but yeah. there wasn't. And that, this is sort of seven years ago and yeah. there's so much more now. So I, I feel hopeful that, things will change. And I also hope that the industry listens to people who are donor conceived as well and, yeah. and can understand and also kind of follows with the pace of technology that DNA testing it, you can't guarantee that they'll be any, completely anonymous yeah. to anyone. Yeah. 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 And I, I think too, there's, I mean, you know, it's hard to depending if, if, you know, I know people who travel abroad too, because, you know, cost is another 
factor, like you talked about, mm-hmm. you know, cost and timing. So if you're on this wait list for forever and ever and ever, and, you know, let's say you're in your forties, I know you weren't, but because I am, yeah. let's pretend I'm, you know, in my mid forties and I'm on a waiting list and I'm like, I, I don't want to be doing this into my fifties. <laughs> Like I, you know, at least that's my, some people may and they're okay with that and that's fine. But, you know, for me, I wouldn't want to, like I would want to. And so you, you have to make that choice. You have to like decide like, you know, what is more important for you and then what you're going to do when you make that choice and you do the best you can. And like you, you know, you talk about it as much as you can, you give them a safe space to explore their feelings and, um, you know, it's just, it's really hard and it's not, there's no perfect way to do it. And, you know, there's no instruction manual that says you do step one, then you do step two and you don't skip step three. You may have to make sure you do step three and then step four. I mean, if that were the case, then, oh my gosh, then this would all be so easy, but you know, there's no such thing as instruction instruction manual. Absolutely not. And I wish there was, but again, everyone's different. There's so many different variables and in terms of how people feel, what's available to them, their options. And, and I, but I think it is, it is about kind of understanding what all the options are Mm -hmm. and not being pushed just down one route. And I know some clinics will go, particularly some in the UK even will say, oh, we, we partner with a clinic in Spain and go over there because, and then these people aren't really allowed to really explore what does that mean in terms of anonymity or anything like that. And I think it's also important to note that there is the option of a known donor as well. And this is becoming more prominent. And I've spoken to some people who have formed a relationship with a donor, whether it's someone they knew before or someone they've met and they have donated to them. And and some of these stories can be beautiful in the way Mm -hmm. that they've turned out in that there is that person in the child's life, but they're not playing that parental role, but mm-hmm. it it's there. And so I remember I, I was asked actually by my clinic, have you got a sister? Mm-hmm. And I don't have a sister. Um, but whether that's something I would have considered, I don't know. And, and yeah. but there, I think it's just knowing that you don't have to go with the first thing that you're told and, and take time. I think pause would be one of my big kind of pieces of advice. Um, which is something I don't necessarily think I did enough of. Um, Mm -hmm. But yeah, I think, like I said, everyone is individual and everyone's path and everyone's feelings are valid and and whatever you decide will be the right decision for you. It's you and your family and it is just around thinking about the whole picture. Yes, And uh, like I say, if you can project yourself forward a bit and and see what you what you might do in different situations. Yeah. And you, and you bring up a good point. It's um, the, you know, like we're, especially when you've had, you know, a, you know, a bunch of bad news over and over again, you just think mm. like, oh my gosh, just give me a win. You know, you're just like, yeah. Yeah. you know, like just, can we just do something that will work? And so then you're eager to just jump right into it and do the next thing or whatever. And, um, you know, like you said, I don't think there should be any shame around that because, you know, like you said, there's a lot of emotions that come up. And if, you know, you're not in that person's shoes, it's really hard to understand or know what they're going through. So, you know, I try to understand all these different stories and I try to give people grace because gosh, this whole thing is hard enough already. Like, I don't think anybody needs any extra judgment from someone else. Like, you know, like the the best we can do is support each other through all of this. And then just say, you know, yeah, you made some really hard choices and there are still many more hard choices to make. Um, And, you know, there is a safe space for you, whether it's, you know, 
in your podcast or in, you know, your paths yeah. to parent hub, that there's a safe space for them to go and just kind of explore some of these feelings, yeah. or even if they want to explore them with their own therapist, counselor, whomever yeah. to just like get that out. But, you know, it doesn't have to fester inside and, you know, all those feelings aren't necessarily wrong or anything like that. What you feel is what no. you feel. And that's totally okay to feel that way. Um, but I think probably, you know, those things are what keeps people from sharing some of it, like, you know, some of, um, you know, other people's thoughts and feelings and stuff like that. And having to make the decision to use um, donor eggs or donor sperm, whatever, is a hard decision to make, period. Like, yeah. that's just a hard decision to make anyway. And to feel comfortable with that decision and to feel like, this is the right path for you to get there for some people. And for some people it isn't, but for some people it's no. a long, hard road to get to be like, okay, yeah. I'm ready. And for some people they're like, well, it is what it is. And this is what I got to do, but they may struggle somewhere else down the line. You know what I mean? Um, but yeah. I, th I think, you know, giving yourself, I mean, giving other people grace too. Yes. But give yourself some grace too. And knowing that, you know, it's, it was tough. This is a tough decision. <laughs> And yeah. having to make that decision is tough. And yeah, you're going to make mistakes. That's part of like parenthood, period. <laughs> like nobody's perfect. Everyone's <laughs> going to make mistakes and it's going to be hard. And it's not going to be the first thing yeah. you're going to do wrong. It's not going to be the first thing that you're going to struggle with. Um, and I think we forget that sometimes that like you're, do. you're yeah. like during I parenthood, you you're going to make mistakes. Yeah. And, and I think when you've been through so much, you just want to be the perfect parent. And mm -hmm. I think often our expectations are higher of ourselves. And, and so I think what you also said there around it is hard and give yourself some grace. I, I remember when I was going through it, I used to think, oh, Becky, just pull yourself together. Why are you finding this so hard? Yeah. And it was only once I'd had the girls, when I listened to a podcast and someone was talking about this, it was Jana Rupno and she was talking about grief. Yeah. And I remember I just broke down in tears because I realized I've been grieving yeah. and I hadn't realized it at the time mm -hmm. because no one was talking about it. And so I was just going through these motions around, it felt very much like a practical decision that I got to make at some point. And, and yet I was grieving something so huge in terms of the loss of my genetics. And this is a conversation I had with um, Julianne on Pastor Parent Hub just last week around reconceiving the dream and dealing with genetic loss. And we were just talking about all the times it, it can still come back up. And I think it's knowing that that grief is there and that grief probably doesn't, doesn't change in size, but you grow around it and other things grow around it as well, but it, it will always be there. And I think that, I think I kind of hoped naively that once I've had my baby, I won't ever think about it again and mm -hmm. we'll just move on. But that's not the reality. It it does come up at times. And mm -hmm. I would definitely say um, the joy and everything else by far yeah. outweighs it. But I think I would be wrong to say it's not there. Yeah. Um, and I still have feelings where I I wish for a simpler story, not just for me, but for them. And, and I do grieve the fact that we don't share genetics, but... I also am grateful at the same time for having them and for, for our family the way it is. So I think for me, it's a lot of it's been around understanding that these feelings can coexist and yes. feeling sad about one thing doesn't mean you love them any less or it's, it's, it's all part of being a family and the way that we got there. And I think it is 
really important, like you say, to give yourself that grace to know that it's okay to feel sad, but it's also okay to feel joy. And, and like you said, everyone will be different. Some people, it won't be right for them. Some people will come to it easily, but it, there's a spectrum and you've just got to do what's right for you. And I think counselling is really, really important if you're struggling with these feelings and having that safe space to talk and, and find someone. So connection with people who've been through it, but also having that safe space with a counsellor who can understand donor conception is really important too. Yeah. And I guess that's another point to bring up too, is um, if you can find someone, therapist, counsellor, whomever, um, ideally someone who understands donor conception and, you know, the grief around losing your genetics or losing that idea of what you thought, you know, yeah. your life was going to look like and that sort of thing. Because I think, you know, in general, I think um, therapists and counselors like have an idea about, you know, working with grief, you know, grief with loss, loss in general, loss of people, loss of relationship, loss of employment, loss of whatever, a home, whatever. Yeah. Um, I think that, I mean, they can kind of get around that stuff, but I think something as unique and complex mm -hmm. as donor conception, I think ideally having someone, I mean, even infertility, I think ideally having someone yeah. who's truly understands that experience um, makes a big difference. I don't know. Yeah. That's what I think. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. And that's why I created a, a counselling directory on Paths to Parenthood, which is specifically um, counsellors who specialise in donor conception. And um, the speakers that I have on are, are all, they, they've worked with people over years and years, whether it be people who are donor conceived, but also families as well. And so I think you're right. It is a really unique situation that needs someone who understands it. And and that's what I didn't have at the time. I had a very generic counsellor, which did help in the space to talk, but she wasn't able to ask me the questions that I probably needed to be asked to reflect on. So, yeah, I think that's really important to know. And then um, a couple more things. One, when you went abroad for um, your donor, what was that experience like? Because you didn't, it's it's not like you got to look at a catalogue of people, right? Because you said you had gotten matched, right? Yeah. So um, again, it's something I, I, I look back at now and I, I try and remember how if I, I think, I remember filling in the form. So ours was very, very top level. It wasn't in great detail. So I filled in a form and it asked for what height, no, not necessarily height. It was eye colour, hair colour. Um, and I think I had to put my height and weight on there and, and any particular criteria. Um, and I remember when they said we had a match and I was that feeling in the pit of my stomach <laughs> when I opened up the email to see the match and there was no picture or anything. It was just, but it was just such a surreal moment, really surreal. And she was effectively me on paper. She was the same height, same weight, hair colour, eye colour, exactly the same age as well. Um, and so it felt right. I, I, there was nothing I could say no <laughs> to, but it felt very strange. And actually when I did fill in the form, because I really wanted them to take care over the matching, I sent them some photos as well, even though they hadn't asked for it. I was like, here's some pictures of me. Um, but and again, I think this is a really unique process depending on who you are and how much information you need and, and what you're comfortable with as well. And 
I know some people who have really wanted to see photos of the donor and so and that can influence where you go for your treatment and um there's an agency in the UK that is based around altruistic egg donation and and I've I've done some work with them and what I love is the fact that the donors are matched one to one but also there's a um there's a letter that they write to to you or to your child as well and and I just think now having the girls if I could give them a letter from that person who talks about their hopes and dreams for this child I I just think it's such a gift to be able to give to them um and I I have always said since going through that process that I wished I had more about her even just a few hobbies or something just to paint more of a picture and that's one of the things I have found difficult in the fact of that that the lack of information that I have rather than anything else really. And I think we've kind of pieced together some things that the um, the girls have all got curls in their hair and that doesn't come from my husband's side. So we have assumed that that comes from the donor's side. Um, but there's not really, I don't look at them and think, oh, I really, I couldn't, I still couldn't quite picture her, <laughs> if you know what I mean. I thought I might be able to. Um, they do very much look like my husband and that's really nice. I like that. I like the comfort in that they can look to him and see themselves reflected there. Um, but I think in talking about resemblances, they don't necessarily look like me, but they definitely act like me and have my mannerisms. And, and so we resemble each other in different ways. Um, a lot of people say we smile in the same way and our sense of humor is the same. Mina's very much she likes the same sort of foods as me and her temperament is very much like mine and and just the way she is at school my mom always says it just reminds me of how you were at school and so even though we don't share genetics you can't spend every second with someone and not pick up elements of so I think one of the hard things is you think about oh, I'm not going to be passing on my legacy in a sense and, and that's something we always assume we would do with a child but it's redefining what that legacy is and, and that legacy for me is that I want them to be good kind human beings who have emotional intelligence who are able to create good relationships with other people and and can find joy out of life and that's what I want for them and it, even though it was hard because I always imagined I'd have a little mini me in terms of I, I look very much like my mom. I assumed that they would look like my child would look like me. It's that again, going back to focusing less on what you're losing, but more on what you're gaining and, and that kind of flipping the narrative a little bit and, and thinking more about, okay, that might not be the obvious thing, but there are other things that we can share. And actually, they're their own person. They're little individuals and all three are completely different personalities. And they've all had the same sort of environment. So there'll be bits that come from the donor we don't know about. But but yeah, I think I would just say if, when you're being matched with the donor, one piece of advice would be that you, you won't ever find a clone of yourself. And I think I've heard people have said, Oh no, that donor's not right. That one's not right. And it, it's about almost thinking: what are your non-negotiables? What is essential? But also, what is okay for for it not to be in terms of a match? And um, it has to be. I think there was a friend of mine who said it just had to feel right enough for us to move ahead. And I think with these decisions, when there are so many unknowns, I don't think you'll ever feel one hundred percent absolutely sure. 
but it has to be right enough for you to take that step forward and, and move forward. But equally, I don't think you'll ever hold that baby in your arms and think, oh, if I only had have chosen that other donor, because you wouldn't have that baby. So he's it, kind of thinking forward again um, to how you might feel if you're thinking, oh, will I regret not having that donor over this donor? So Yeah. And I've heard yeah. several parents say, like, after your child arrives, a lot of that fades away. Like all these little characteristics that you cared yeah. about when you were selecting a donor kind of just fades away. And I, like, I've talked to several people yeah. who've um, used donors and that's kind of, there's the, you know, you worry about all these things ahead of time. And then once your kid gets here, it's like, I didn't even yeah. think about You're that. worrying about other things <laughs> yeah. at that point. You're worrying about their yeah. sleep schedule. You're wondering, about, are they eating enough? And, and you go into parent mode. And so it can feel like the biggest decision you've ever made in your entire life. And, and yet later down the line, some of that, it, the enormity of it does fade because you, at the end of the day, you have that child and and that is the child that you raise and and love and nurture and, and everything else. And so, yeah, I think, again, it's about that validation of that process and the emotions that you feel when you're going through it, which is so important. But yeah, also knowing that I think it's probably impossible to be absolutely 100% sure. So stop putting pressure on yourself to get to that point. So another question that comes up too is language you know, how, how do you refer to the donor in your home? Because a lot of people will use different language, different words to describe the donor. So what do you guys use in your home? So um, at the moment, we, we kind of base it around age appropriate kind of language um, and what we feel is best. And we refer to her as the egg donor at the moment because she donated her eggs. And one of the things that has taken me a bit longer to almost to accept and get my head around is the word parent in relation to that and genetic mother, which factually, scientifically, that is correct. And that is true. And that is something that I need to develop the story into so that I can explain that this, the person who we refer to as egg donor is your genetic parent as well. Now, my personal feeling, I know the different feelings around this is that at the age my girls are at, for me to introduce a term that also has the word mother in it or parent in it could be quite confusing. And I think in particular, because we don't have access to her and I, I, my fear at the moment is for me to introduce that and start talking about this is your genetic mother would confuse them. And so this is something where, when I, I mentioned earlier, I'm going to start going through this book and I need to find the title of it um, all about DNA with Mila and talking about things. And that's where I will start to introduce the term genetic parent. Um, and I mean, I, I tend to lean more towards genetic because I, I've had biological, but also I think both her and myself have a biological role in them coming into the world. So, so I steer away from biological mother, but genetic, I think it, it's factually correct. And I think there's a real sensitivity around the word mother and parent because we often see it in, in terms of the, almost like the verb. So the doing, so parenting, mothering, and all of those things are what I do. That's what I do. That's not what, what our donor does. But in terms of the noun and what that is called, 
a parent, if you look at the definition and, and what they are, they provided half the genetics and they are the genetic parents. So I think it's, it's a really difficult one, I think, as parents to get our heads around and to try and think about, especially when you're in the early stages, to have to think about talking to your child about a genetic parent. And, and when you're thinking, but I'm the parent, I want to be the parent, you can be, feel very protective over that role. I think it is about kind of realizing that using one doesn't have to take away from the other, that me talking about her in those factually correct terms doesn't make me any less of a mum. And so it it's not easy. And, and I have, like, it's, it's been a journey, it's still a process for me. And, and it will be when I start talking to Mila about it, I'll still feel that knot in my stomach because it, it touches on my insecurities and, and feelings of loss. And so, yeah, for us, that's where we're starting. That's where we are. Um, but I will be explaining to them what that means and allowing them the space to choose what they want to term her as, um, as they get older. Um, but I think every family will be different, but that, that's how we do it. And that'll be something I keep sharing as I go through, because I think that that's helpful for me to reflect on and, and also for others to, to hear about. And it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to do it in that way, but it's just an example and it's allowing people to see a reality of how those conversations go down. You know, for some people, like they can just understand that that's synonymous for them. So for you, you know, if you're comfortable using, you know, genetic donor or egg donor or whatever, someone else might be comfortable saying, you know, biological mother or whatever. Um, And, you know, the people in the surrogacy circles struggle with this as well, because, you know, it's like, oh, well, she's the surrogate mother. And then, you know, a lot of the um, parents will, will say, whoa, 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 I'm doing the parenting, you know? So, I mean, this comes up in, in the surrogacy circles as well, where, you know, there's the, the terms are, um, the language used, um, can be important depending on who you're talking to. And I think, um, if you're not sure, or if you meet a family or whatever, I think the best thing to do is ask, you know, which do you prefer? What language do you prefer to use or what should we use around, you know, your family so that you're comfortable because different people are going to be comfortable with different, you know, words, however they've built. Yeah. Yeah. And I think because of the social constructs that, that are created around those terms, you know, like, you know, what does it mean to be a parent socially? (laughs) What does it mean emotionally to be, you know, it's like, so they're so deep rooted. It's not just the definition, it's the emotions tied to those words and what they represent. And, you know, especially, you know, for people who've been through, you know, surrogates or people or recipient parents, um, or people, sorry, um, families who are, you know, intended parents, um, intended families, and then recipient parents, um, they've already been through so much. It's like, oh my gosh, it's like another layer that they have to kind of yeah. like, it, it can it, feel like that at times. Like, oh yeah. Where you feel like, cause you already feel like you're not worthy. Something else I've got to think about. Yeah. Cause you already feel like you're not worthy yeah. enough to be. And then you're like, don't take this word away from me too. You know what I mean? So I think it can yeah, feel very much like that. And I think it's important to be sensitive to that, you know, no matter who you're talking to, yeah. just to just to ask, you know, what do you prefer? And I think that just can eliminate so much confusion and heartache and hurt feelings. If we just are sensitive enough to ask the question like, Hey, which do you prefer? And, and I, I will preface like a hundred percent of the time say, I'm sorry for my ignorance. I don't know which, 
I, I don't know what's the best term to use. How can I support you? And I don't think anybody would ever be upset about that. No. If you come out and just say, no. I'm, I want to be respectful. I don't know what to do. I don't know what to say. Can you tell me what to say that is, you know, respectful for you? Yeah. And most people would be yeah. overjoyed <laughs> by, you know. They will, just yeah. to be asked. Yes. Yeah. Instead yeah. of, you know. Um, and then I think, too, you learn you know, if you end up wanting to use that in your home with your children, then you learn from other people like, oh, this is how, this is their comfort level with this. And this is why maybe I'll try it. But I love the idea that you'll give your children the choice of what they choose to use when they're older and they can fully understand the experience that they can say, okay, I'm comfortable with using this. Um, And, you know, I could see that for me anyway, being a little bit, um, you know, gut wrenching if I'm if they like decide to use yeah, something that yeah. is like hurtful to me. You know, like, but it's not about me. I, I yeah. think I would have to remember that that it's yeah. not about me. It's about you know their experience and how they see it. Um, but yeah, that's super important. So thanks for talking about that. And then you know the other the last two things I kind of want to get to is uh, the Path to Parent Hub um, resource um, that you created, and then your podcast. So can we talk about how you got to creating that space and how you decided that this was something that you were going to do? Yeah. So um, actually COVID and the lockdown, I was about to hold an in-person event in the UK and obviously COVID happened. So that got cancelled and I was thinking, well, how can I, because I wanted to bring some conversations to people, how can I do this? And so I spent lockdown basically thinking about all of the different things I wished I'd have known or would like to know and, and almost created a full list of all these different topics to have conversations on. And and during that time, I built the website. In that case, I could reach more people and actually people can connect with each other easier and, and in a safe space. Um, so I launched in September 2020 and had a full program of events. So we started talking about grieving the loss of a dream and redefining a new dream. We had a session on epigenetics. We talked about DNA testing, we've had donor conceived people on, and also lots of different recipient parents at different stages as they just like I have today, shared their experiences. And and all of these conversations that have happened, and there's I think there's over 60 now, um, are all available to watch back. So you can go right back to the beginning. I've literally just launched a resource called the Common Fears Resource. And basically, it helps you navigate. So it's, there's a whole circle of questions. So you might be thinking, I'm worried about attachment and bonding. And you can click on this question. You can go through this, some commentary of things to think about, some reflections. And then there are the webinars that are specific to that. So we've got tea. So all of those fears about feeling like the real mom, the real dad. Um, and then even questions like, how do I talk to friends and family? We've got webinars around that. And there's just something there for every stage and for parenting as well. So there's a um, some webinars around talking to children in the younger years, adapting as they grow. And over the next year, I'm planning some sessions with a child psychologist to understand the different stages of child development and identity formation so that we can understand as parents what to expect at different stages and how can we best in parents at whatever stage they're at in understanding their own emotions, having the space to express them, almost sparking conversations between couples as well. I've had lots of people who said, me and my husband, we've not really been talking about how we're going to talk to our child, but we've sat and watched this webinar together and it's opened up a discussion and it's given us ideas. And and so it's just that opportunity to explore, but in the safety of your own home as well. And you can do it anonymously or you can be a bit more open on the platform. Um, 
but I also host support groups every month as well. So it's a virtual chance to come together and meet other people. So tomorrow night, actually, I'm hosting a trying to conceive group and a pregnant and parenting group. So it has grown over the past two years. And I'm so proud of what it's become because it is kind of everything I would have wanted and more. And just hearing how it's helped people is it just makes it all worth it. So, yeah, it's a membership platform. So there is a membership fee for it. But I think for what you can get from it and have hopefully it just gives you that confidence and that kind of reflection to allow you on your own journey to, to kind of find your way. Um, it's not a replacement for counselling. I think if you still need counselling, then that's there. But I think it just gives you that starter to try and work through and navigate your own emotions. Um, and then the podcast. So I started the Redefining Parenthood podcast at the beginning of this year. And um, I must say, it's been quite sporadic in terms of letting episodes out. I'm not, not as organised as you. Um, but there is a series now and, and it just features lots of different stories. And I think that's a really great way as well if you're you've got friends or family who you want to understand what it's like and you can say, look, just listen to this podcast and they can go away and listen to these thoughts and feelings. And at the end of every episode, Julianne Boutaleb, who is the perinatal psychologist I work with, we, we delve into a, a particular fear or a particular question that comes up. So the most recent one was around feeling like the real mum and, and Julianne gives her words of wisdom around, okay, why do we feel like this and what can we do to try and help manage it? And different ways of reframing. So it's just all about allowing people to explore these different experiences, but different thoughts and feelings. And that's very much what I'm about. I, it's not going to tell you which clinic to use or um, which level of treatment to use. It's about the emotional aspects and the psychological side and, and just helping people feel less alone, really. Mm -hmm. No, my gosh, that's so wonderful. I think, I mean, I, I, assume, and I don't know if this is true, so you can tell me, I assume you kind of built this around what you would have liked to have had when you were going through yeah. all this and like all the questions that came up in your mind. And obviously, you know, your members, what, you know, questions that come up in their mind, but you know, I would imagine, because that's the reason why I made this podcast and the reason why I made my account was because yeah. I, I wanted access to these things when I was first exposed to all of this and I didn't have it or there wasn't enough conversation at least for me over 40 there was there wasn't a lot out there about mm -hmm. what it's like being over 40 and then you know much like yeah. you didn't know you could go through menopause so early or you know have your fertility be yeah. um you know i don't want to say taken away but you know had your fertility um change in, at such a young age um you know, even though yeah. at, when we're older, we expect that that will happen. We expect that our fertility will change. It's still is shocking to us. And, you know, how we've grown up with all this media stuff, we're like, oh, no, we can do it into our 40s. IVF will solve everything. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> no. and, and actually and so, quite a few of my members are over 40 because quite often that, that is the stage where donor eggs need, because I was hearing from my members that that was one of the fears, one of the questions that they had, like, how will this impact my child? And how do I feel as a, a an older parent? And Julianne Boutelab did a brilliant webinar around that. And a lot of people again were saying, oh, I just feel validated in the things that I've been worrying about. And they were able to connect with other people as well who were at that stage. So we, there's people at different stages and, and some who have got POI like myself, but others who are of doing this later on, whether it's after a long fertility journey or for whatever reason, but there are different nuances and feelings and thoughts with each of those stages that people will have. And 
is about just finding those other people and connecting with them to to do this and feel less alone. Yes. Oh my gosh. Thank you for making this resource for people. It's, I think, going to make people feel, like you said, a lot less alone. They're going to feel a lot more validated and they're going to feel like yeah. it's, you know, that all these yeah. questions that they had are not odd or anything like that. It's very normal part of the process and um, that there doesn't need to be any shame around it, which I think is another important thing. Um, we had some questions submitted for you, so we'll go through um, some of these questions. Um, okay, so first one, um, do you ever envy that they look like your spouse and not you? Um, so I think at first I was a bit, I think in, actually I surprised myself because I was quite comforted by the fact that they look so much like Matt. Um, but I, there has been an occasion, and I actually remember this, where um, my husband, he'd got uh, Mila and he was saying, he was looking in her eyes and he said, oh, Mila, you look so much like me. You've, I just got my eyes the heart a little bit because it was almost like, oh, I'm never going to have that with them where I look in their eyes and I see physically. But so I would say that I don't necessarily, it's not something that clouds me. I don't feel it all the time, but there are the odd moment where he kind of declares it to the room. <laughs> it's hard not to feel a bit like, oh. and I remember I did say to him afterwards, I know you do. That was quite hard. To, and it doesn't bother me that they do. I actually quite like the fact that they, they are able to share resemblance with one of us in, in that way. Do you ever feel like, like, you know, in that moment, did you ever, do you feel like you're like the third person or the third wheel or fifth wheel or whatever, fourth, fourth wheel, fifth wheel? Um, I wouldn't say I feel any less part of the family or, or anything like that. I think, cause I, I am a, kind of an integral part of it. I kind of do the main childcare and everything else. And I think I just, it just reminded me of what I don't get to share with them and, and that, that pang of, oh, I wish I could have done that. So more so that I, I don't feel like a spare part or like I don't belong in any way at all. Because I know some people will worry about that. Like, oh, well, I see that there's mm. this bond there that I won't ever, you yeah. know, I know that question has come up before when I do like a donor thing. So yeah. I, I'm always curious how. Yeah. And I, I did worry about that. I worried that they would have a stronger bond with him. But if anything, they spend more time with me and, and, and they they will come to me more than they will him because they are more used to be and, and I know them like we're so in tune with each other so it's that nurture side that has taken over in that in that way really do you ever think about how they don't look like your family like your you know um brother father anyone like that not hugely no um actually it's really strange that whenever they have a photo taken with my brother there's a, a real similarity they really look like my brother um more so than they resemble me which is nothing to do with genetics they just happen to both have blue eyes and they have a similar expression but um recently i have found out my my brother is expecting a baby with his partner and that will be my first genetic niece or nephew and that brought back a few feelings for me and made me, I don't know, it took me by surprise, really. Um, just the, I think just the concept and thought that I will share genetics with this child more so than I do with my own children. And that's a strange thing to get your head around. And also the thought of a, what, what if this 
new baby resembles me in some way. How will that feel? But that was kind of more of an initial shock. And now I'm really, really excited. And, and then it can bring up those old feelings of, oh, yeah, I felt that genetic loss come back there. But yeah, it's 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 a strange feeling because you want to, you are so excited and so happy for them. It's like any pregnancy announcement, isn't it? After you've been through infertility, it's it's never easy. Um, but it did remind me of what I don't share with the girls, and and so yeah. But they, I don't think they look stark, starkly different to my family, and the the bond is just so strong. It's, it's it's gorgeous. I just, the way my mum and dad are with them and the rest of the family, they absolutely adore them. So, no, there's never been anything where I thought, oh, they really don't look like them at all. Um, and how did you know it was time to move to donor eggs? We we went from a kind of, it was a bit of a head and heart thing, emotionally drained with the process. But my husband's very logical. And he I remember him asking the, the consultant for a percentage chance with own eggs and donor. And I think they said 5% with my eggs mm. and over 50% with donor. And, and that was where I think he started to think, actually, again, how much more can we do this? And I didn't know how much more I could put myself through. And I think it was only through grieving each of those IVF cycles that I became closer to it. So it wasn't like a life light bulb moment where I suddenly went, yeah, make that decision. It was a process over time. And, and again, that bit where I started to tip more from thinking about what I was losing more towards what I might be gaining and, and actually feeling more excited about the possibilities rather than the sadness at what I was losing cycle, even though I had my anxieties, I suddenly thought, actually, this was the last five cycles. Each time my expectations went down, that move. It's definitely search as well. And, and again, I've had some of these webinars on paths to parenthood. I've, I've realized that actually- Do you worry that your children will resent that you that for using a Is the reason that they feel negative feelings towards you, it tends to be more about the way in which either they were told or show up for them and how I talk to them about it and how they're going to resent me. I think I can, so it doesn't necessarily mean they resent me. And I think it is about, I think there's that feeling of resentment, but there's, worry about that if it happens. It's it's about preparing ourselves. And, and a lot of that is about working on ourselves and our own grief and emotions, I think, to be able to be in a, the best place to support them in any feelings yeah. that they might have. Um, I know you went over these earlier, but we'll just kind of do a list here, but I'll, I'll drop it in the show notes. Any tools or books that you recommend for explaining uh, that they are donor conceived from a donor egg? Um, so families, what makes a baby is a great one for kind of create your own story. And so there's, there's one called sensitive matter. The things I did find with happy together children's book is having Esker and Lena as twins. See what works for you because everyone's different. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and of course, past parent hub, <laughs> that's another good resource. <laughs> it's not a book, but it's a good resource. <laughs> um, okay. So this other question is, um, and I know you didn't necessarily have to go through this, but I don't know if you thought about it, but um, half siblings, did you ever think about, you know, if, if um, some of those embryos didn't take and, you know, um, that donor, I don't know how that works in the Czech Republic, if, you know, those donors would be available or anything. Um, do you talk about half siblings on Paths Parent Hub or did you ever think about it? 
again, this is something that at the time you're so focused on having a baby, you don't know, a conceived person, she can talk to that, but also as a parent where she has started connecting with siblings. And, um, and obviously we were fortunate that we've had three um, children, all full genetic mm -hmm. siblings, all made on, but I don't know what's happened after that. So she could have donated at another clinic. Um, she may have had her own children. So yeah. And asking the questions ahead of time, you know, if you know, you want to have more than one child, then, you know, whether you're using an egg bank or, you know, if you have, um, a fresh donor or something, then that might be something that you need to plan for ahead of time, especially if, you know, your donor may not be available, then, you know, that's something that you want to think about and plan ahead. So, I mean, these are all really great questions that, again, when, when you're, have, when you have tunnel vision and the only thing you're worried about is trying to get that positive pregnancy test, you may not think about, well, if this works and if we want a sibling, then what, then what, you know, then, then what happens? And like, oh no, I didn't plan for that to get an extra batch of eggs or, you know, to get a second cycle with the donor or something before she gets, you know, quote unquote retired. I don't really know that that was the best word to use, but I didn't know what else to use. But, you know, before she's no longer donating, I guess is the better way to say it. But, you know, I mean, like you said, I, I, I think these are things that you don't think about. These are things that when you're in the thick of it, when you're emotionally tied to, you know, all these negative events that happen, you're just like, oh, give me a win. And then, you know, you kind of don't think about these things. But I think that's um, what's nice about these conversations is that we put that out there. And even when you're going through the thick of the process and you say, oh, wait a minute, these are some things we should probably think about, conversations we should have. And, and that's the time to have it is right now. You know, not like, you know, later on where you may have missed that opportunity if it's really important to you to have, you know, siblings that are fully genetically related. You know what I mean? Um, I want to thank you today for being on here and having all these difficult conversations and saying this stuff out loud that I think a lot of times we're afraid to have, you know, said out loud. So I'm so grateful for you coming on the show. Um, thank you for spending time and thank you for sharing your story and thank you for sharing all these great resources too for everyone. Cause you know, when I started diving into all this, it was just, Oh, donor egg. <laughs> and that was kind of like the end of it. And then, you know, had I not done this deep dive, I don't know that I would have been exposed to all of these considerations, all of these things that you have to think about. And I was um, surprised by all the layers of things that you have to think about um, on this path to parenthood, like on, on this version of um, creating a family or building your family. Um, and so I think it's so important to um, have these conversations out loud and thank you for, you know, having all these uh, like amazing resources, the counselors, the webinars, the, you know, um, discussion around genetics, the grieving, the everything. Um, Cause it really does take you by surprise. Some of these feelings, you, especially when you don't, I mean, like infertility itself is hard, but when the, when someone has that conversation with you and tells you, they don't think you can do it on your own, which I'm, it sounds a lot more harsh me saying it that way, but that's how it's heard. That's how I hear it. How I hear it is you can't do it on your own. You need help. And it is, there's a lot to digest. <laughs> so 
And hopefully you'll come back. So when, you know, more stuff comes out on Past Parent Hub or anything like that, I'd love to have you back on to chat about, you know, those resources and experiences and things that'll come up. And, you know, um, I know I was talking to Haley, I won't spill the beans, but I know things are coming up (laughs) that you guys are doing over there. I want to thank you for tuning in today. I hope you found today's episode helpful. If you want a question or topic covered in future episodes, please feel free to reach out to me on Instagram at 40 and infertile. Make sure you hit the subscribe button for alerts and new episodes, and I hope to see you back again soon. Bye.